All right. Nothing like a little Judas priest before Torah study, right? <laughs> um, okay. Um, uh, hi, everybody. Nice to see you. Um, today, we are, um, today we're going to be looking at um, something very, very important, very important happens in this week's, um, in this week's Parsha. Um, there's a lot going on in this week's Parsha. This week, the, 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 la the first couple of Parshot of Bamidbar are kind of tough going. There's a lot of heavy details and logistics. And then um, Parshat Baalotcha comes and it's like, um, there's, there's a lot going on from the start. There's the menorah, the actual menorah is like described and that's where it gets a Baalotcha when you light the menorah. And then there's like other implements of the temple, the silver trumpets. I was thinking of teaching about those, but we'll do that another time. But that, that, they're a kind of fascinating instrument unto themselves. Um, and then there's a, there's a break in the Parsha with like these two sectioned off lines that we use for our Torah service. In fact, we did the part, the podcast on that this week. Um, Vera, if you, you want to uh, put that in the chat, that's what we talked about is those two lines in the, that are bracketed off by backwards nuns, very strange. And then, and then as, as soon as those uh, nuns bracket off, the, they almost like start the real book of, of, of Bamidbar, a book of numbers with the mitononim, with the, the people who bur burst out in complaints. And that actually ends up being really the theme of the book of numbers for the rest of the book is just like feuding and, and, dip, and, and agony and conflict and anyway. So there's a lot going on here in Parshat Baalotcha. There were, it's one of those parshas where you, there's so much to talk about, you almost don't know what to talk about. But in the midst of it all, in the midst of it all, in chapter nine of, 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 of Bamidbar, um, we see the beginning of an important legal tradition or a, an important legal conversation. Now, law is a very big deal in the Torah, in Judaism. It, you know, I went to rabbinical school, and for me, that meant we just studied law for four years, right? Because that, it, like the study of the Talmud, and then by extension, the, the study of the law, the application of the law. Law is a big deal in this tradition, Ten Commandments. What does God reveal? Law. Um, but this particular strain of thought, this, this, this particular legal conversation, um, it, it is, it's, it's distinct and it's important because in a way it sets the stage for, for the Talmud itself, for what we will become rabbinic law or legislation, what will become extra law, more legal discussion than, than we have in the Torah. Um, and what do I mean by that? Well, let me illustrate just by naming one, uh, one of the cases in this tradition, the most prominent, I think, case in the Torah, and that is the, the case of the daughters of Tzlovchad, Benot Tzlovchad. Some of you are nodding, Benot Tzlovchad. Very, very important uh, passage in, it's in the book of Numbers. One, I think, I think we, we don't talk about it enough. It's one of the most important passages in the Torah and um, the case is essentially this. We'll look at it today, but essentially that inheritance in the Torah is, um, is passed through the patriarch, patriarchy, right? But literally patriarch, the inheritance is passed through um, sons 
from fathers to sons. And um, that, in a sense, uh, doesn't affect, I mean, it, the whole system affects women. I don't mean to brush that aside. But it doesn't affect most women because most women are married to, to a man who has who is part of a tribe, but what about unmarried women? And the daughters of Salaf Khat say, we're, we're not part of another tribe. Can we inherit from our father? And they, they challenge the laws of inheritance, essentially, and they win. That's the big deal. They win. They win the case. The, the law is reconfigured in real time in the Torah. Okay? It's staggering, and there's a lot to consider. There's a lot, I think, that ripples throughout Jew Jewish um, thinking, throughout history. But this is actually, Benot Slovchad is actually only the middle case of three cases just like this in the Torah. There's three cases, and they're all in the book of Numbers, and the first one is this week. Okay, so we're going to look at the first one. We'll, I'll try to cover all three cases, but I want us to see... A, a tradition developing, and it develops in a very kind of quiet way this week. Um, but it turns into something that I think is changes all changes the whole Torah itself, almost literally. Um, okay, let's say a blessing just to bring us into the space. I see that uh, Leah uh, is here, and it's her birthday, Leah Buckle. So I just want to wish you a very happy birthday and. Uh, what a what a what an inspiration you are to celebrate your birthday by coming to learn Torah. What that's like that's a real testament to the to you know you when you when you have a day where you're supposed to treat yourself to treat yourself with Torah and um and there this this I hope really will be a treat because there's a lot of complicated intertextuality going on here, lots of interesting stuff, and as I said, a very very important conversation for the rest of Jewish um, thought and legislation. Okay. I'll say a blessing. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kidshanu BaMitzvotav Tzivanu LaAsok B'Divrei Torah. Okay. All right. So here we go. Um, let me. Let's see. Let me take us now. Let me give you the source sheet right away. Because what I want to look at is the. We're going to look at three cases. We get to them. We're going to look at three cases today, and the. Uh, the first, the middle case is the daughters of Tzilevchad. The first case is Pesach Sheni, is Pesach Sheni. So, and that's what uh, uh, comes up today here. It is in, in chapter nine of the Book of Numbers. Remember the first 10 chapters of the Book of Numbers feel a little bit like miscellaneous, like a bunch of stuff that Numbers needs to like, get off its chest or clear its throat before it heads into the drama of numbers. But one of those things, chapter nine of those things is Pesach Sheni, which means the second Passover. So let's take a look at how, at, at how, that, uh, how that appears. So the beginning of this is almost like not, not necessary. Um, there we are. Um, except to tell us that um, just like they celebrated Passover the first year that they left, so they kept it a, a tradition. Like, in other words, this is going to look very familiar. This is just Passover. But the important thing is that the Book of Numbers is, is telling us now, even a year later, after they'd left Egypt, they still kept Passover. 
Now they're, they're putting it into practice. So the Eternal spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. That's that's Bamidbar language, Bamidbar Sinai. By the Hashem el Moshe, Bamidbar Sinai. That's how the book opened up. On the first new moon of the second year, second year, following the exodus from the land of Egypt. Um, saying, let the Israelite people offer the pack, Passover sacrifice, um, which they just called the Pasach, the Pesach, at its set time. So you got to offer it at a set time. And, and we, we got that when we were leaving Egypt. The set, set time is um, the 14th of Nisan. So, okay. So you shall offer it on the 14th day of this month. This is it. We're in, we're in the new year now, the second year of our journey. We're beginning at twilight at its set time. You shall offer it in accordance with all its rules and rites. And Moses instructed the Israelites to offer the Passover sacrifice. They offered the Passover sacrifice in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai. There's that Bamidbar Sinai again, in the wilderness of Sinai, All right? So we're in, now we're in, it's like almost telling us like we're not, we're not near Egypt anymore. We're not, it's not about Mount Sinai anymore. We're in the desert now. We're heading into the desert. Just as every, in accordance with everything that the Eternal had commanded Moses, so the Israelites did. Okay, but, but. But there were some men who were impure or tame through contact with a corpse, which is the, that's the most severe form of impurity you can have. If you touch a dead body, that's like, that's impurity. You can't off, you can't come into contact with anything holy. Uh, meaning uh, temple holy. Okay. So they had come into contact with the corpse and they could not offer the Passover sacrifice on that day. They were impure. So they came forward. They came forward that same day. I'm, I'm bolding some of these words because they become key phrases throughout all of these cases. They came forward on that day before Moses and Aaron and they said to them, now this is a big moment. And, you know, it, it, it's more dramatic when the daughters of Slofchad do it, but this is the first time we have anything like this. The men said to them, though we are impure because of a corpse, why must we be prevented from bringing forth the Eternal's offering at its set time with the rest of the Israelites? We want to do it in the middle of, with, with everyone else. And Moses said, stand by. <laughs> okay. Uh, that also should be bold. Stand, stand by. Stand here. Stand by and let me hear what God, what the eternal commands for you. Now that's, let's just, I hope we register how crazy a moment that is in the Torah, how surprising a moment that is in the Torah, where a couple of people come and they say, well, what do you mean? Like, you, uh, you have to uh, offer the pa Passover sacrifice on the 14th. 
we're we're not able to do that. So um, what about us? And Moshe says, I don't I, I don't know about you, but I feel like Moshe like what Moshe should be saying is too bad, you know, like, I don't know what, to, I, sorry, like, it's just not going to work out for you today. We have two laws. One is offer this Passover sacrifice on the 14th. The other one is you can't offer a sacrifice when you're in a state of impurity. So you're not able to offer the Passover sacrifice this year. Gamar new. Okay. But that's not what Moshe says. He says, hold on. I'm going to go ask God about this. Now we have a whole new religion, I think. In this moment, we have a whole new religion. Because the idea that God's going to go, Moshe's going to go back to God and be like, I need help figuring this out, that in itself. But also there's a little bit of a, there's a problem here. Like what, what are the people asking for? And I want you to, I'm going to open it up in just a second. I want you to think, what would you, what would God do? What would you do if you were God? What would you say to these people? What's the solution? What actually makes sense given this problem? I'm going to I'm going to give you the actual answer so we're not just kind of fishing for it but think for a minute what what would you tell these people if you were God what would you tell them we know that Moshe uh it's really what would you tell them if you were Moshe but Moshe has told us that he doesn't have an answer and he has to go to God okay so here's the solution and this is what we call Pesach Sheni the second Passover and the eternal spoke to Moses saying speak to the Israelite people saying when any party, whether you or your posterity, okay, meaning that's that's a funny way to translate it. For whether right now or for or throughout the generations, throughout the generations, that's what the Ladorotechem. Okay. Um, so when you or any party um, is impure by a corpse, we saw that that's what the Tamela Nefesh right here, Tamela Nefesh. Or is on a long journey. Mm, new information. Oh, bederech rechoka, and asa pasach lashem, and they want they they want to offer a Passover offering to God. Okay, so there's this situation plus an extra case. Uh, if you were far too far from, you're on a journey. I mean, that's an interest. Why why suddenly add that? But okay, they shall offer it in the second month on the 14th day of the month at twilight, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Well, yeah. So they do, it's just like Passover. They do Passover, and they don't leave any of it over until morning. They don't break a bone of it. They offer it in strict accord with the law of the Passover sacrifice. Same thing that you do on Passover. And, and then one final word, but... <laughs> If any party is pure and not on a journey, refrains from offering the Passover sacrifice, that person shall be cut off from their kin. For the eternal offerings was not brought forth in its set time. So this is not an open pass to start doing Passover on pass on second Passover, but it's it, it's you can't take advantage of it. If you do, actually, the punishment is quite severe. This is this is one of the most severe punishments the Torah can offer, maybe the most. This person shall be cut off from the people. Cut off. Okay. Okay. That's Pesach Sheni. Now, what's the problem that we know? The problem is we want to offer the Passover sacrifice and we're impure. What's the solution? We're going to hold 
it's Passover in February, <laughs> basically. But it's not February, it's ER. But they don't, they're not, they don't, those are Aramaic month names. They didn't use Nisan and ER in those days. It was the first month and the second month. They're in the first month, so they're about to celebrate Passover again. And God says, all of a sudden, receives a complaint. And God says, okay, you can offer the sacrifice in the, in the second month instead. You can do it on the 14th of the second month. Okay, so now let's begin to think about this a little bit. Um, let's just think, yeah, let's just think about this through, through, through the lens of, of, a, of a kind of a legal, practical decision-making question. Is this a good solution? Is this the one you would have offered? Does this seem like, wow, I'm so glad the Torah came up with pa the second Passover. And, and as I say that, I'm, I'm asking the question, but I'm like, well, then why not second Shavuot and second, you know, like second Shabbat? I mean, if, you, if you're, I don't know, like, it's a, is it a good solution? It, we get law from on high. It's coming down from the mountain. It's God's law. You just, that's all there is to it. But God's, there's a complaint box. There's room for, for what, what I would think is a kind of a, an appeal, an appeal, a court, like, a, like, like in a court of appeals, like to go to a higher authority, right? But this case, it's the same authority. It's not, not quite a parallel concept, right? Going back to, going back to um, the, the, the writer of the constitution and saying, hey, could you, you think you missed something. And, and, you know, whoever it is, you know, like founding, you know, God here in this case says, okay, yeah. So that's a big deal. And also, Ariella notes another really, that there's a worry with this kind of move. There's a worry. All of a sudden, it seems like, wow, this could be open season. Now, anyone doesn't like anything about the law. Right. And, and I like it especially seems that way in, in some respects, because this seems this seems feels to us in initially. I don't know about you, but to me, it feels like a relatively mundane concern. Right. Like, is it such a big deal that you couldn't offer the Passover sacrifice? I mean, it just didn't work out for you this year. Now, it's the first year they're doing it. And Passover is the one year celebration of the. So I'm quickly brushing aside my own concern. Like this is like the moment to celebrate the Exodus. It mattered to them. And more than that, let's just state the obvious. This is not a mundane concern. What is the situation that these men are in? They, they, they've had a death, probably a death in the family. They've been dealing with death. That is not, that's not mundane. I didn't put this on the source sheet, but the Ibn Ezra puts it beautifully here. He says, when it says suddenly, there, but there were some men he says, It's not possible, after all, that there should be a great and huge camp of Israel. Where there wouldn't be deaths every single day. That's like, and I can tell you, when you work in a, in a, in a community, when you're a rabbi in a community, you suddenly get how true this is. Every single day, someone is losing something. There's death all the time. So what do you do? I mean, that's like, how do you treat someone who, is in, who feels that loss and also loses Passover? Right. Also loses Passover. Okay, so, so 
there's a, so the, God is merciful. God is understanding. God is practical. And yet don't get carried away. Don't get carried away. Okay. Um, uh, more thoughts. Let me let me turn to Matt Silverstein. Matt Silverstein, who um, has been very transparent all along, but shared with us uh, just again last week that you know is on a real health uh, journey right now of healing. And so we're just like all the Torah study that we do, we're thinking of 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 healing for Matt Silverstein. Um, such Thank a you. such a helpful and brilliant member of our group. So just like Thank you. just just blessing you with healing. Matt, what are your thoughts? Thank you. Um, to some extent, this goes back. I'm still what you ask what we would do. And my answer is, I don't know how important sacrifice is. And I don't know yet, me, what clean and unclean, how important it is and what. So I can't answer. If sacrifice is incredibly important, then you do the sacrifice. I don't care if, you know, I'll, you know. And if unclean is incredibly important, and this is telling me, unfortunately, in a sense, well, they're both really important, so I'll I'll make it work. And I still don't know which is more important, why they matter. This, you know, I, I don't almost feel like this is God playing with me, because rather than saying, oh, you're concerned, I'm going to help you, I'm still in the same place of not understanding what these things are doing, why they're there, what's more so, what's less so. So that is, that, yeah, <laughs> that's all that's incredibly, right. I said the first word I used um, was helpful that describes Matt, Matt's role in our, in our conversations. And that is it's just incredibly helpful, right on target. I mean, Matt puts it so well. There's, there's a couple of variables here that are, that are kind of marching against one another. And one is the importance of the sacrifice the Passover sacrifice. And the other one is um, the importance of being pure in a state of purity when you offer a sacrifice. And Matt is saying like, well, is this a good solution? I guess it kind of depends on how important it is to offer a sacrifice. I don't really have any experience with that. And the Torah hasn't necessarily, has the Torah named this as the most important thing? You're supposed to do it, but there's lots of things you're supposed to do. And then the question of, well, can you, if it's important to do it, can you offer it in a state of impurity? Or can, is it really important to be pure? I mean, can we fudge that a little bit? I, I, I don't know. How important it is, is it to you, God? And in a way, that's what the people are asking. It's like, can't we just, come on. Can't we just, and how, do we, how are we to evaluate? Is somehow God says, it seems that God says, and I want to just note this now. Let's, so first of all, very helpful what, what, what Matt is, is, is pointing out here. That it's like, when we hear the case of the daughters of Tzlovchad, we have an immediate moral entry point. Oh, yeah. And especially we in the, in, the, in, the, in, in the feminist age, we are like, wow, we see right away that the women were left out. So they, 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 they stood up for something that was unjust. And when it's resolved, we feel like, well, thank God, I mean... There's a little bit of just a burst of proto-feminism in the Torah, if, if, if only that. I mean, that's great. But this is like what is, it feels like very technical. Now, having said that, I want to just name something you may have seen. But wh what is it that God offers them? Is it, is it what they wanted? Is it what they wanted? I see some people shaking no. So some of you notice what God said was tell them they'll, they can just do it on the second month. 
and they'll just do it as if it was the first month. There's an interesting discussion of like, is Passover Sheni, is Pesach Sheni just like the first? And like, not exactly, you can eat bread around this time, but the main thing is that you can, the sacrifice, is that you can bring that again, right? Okay, that's what God said, but that's not what they wanted. They came forth and they said, we're impure, but why can't we bring it at its set time along with everybody else? Okay, and that was that set time. That was something that Moses had said already twice. So that's bemoado. That that that's not that's not random language. That's a, a moed is an important thing. That's so again, <laughs> I would bring a Matt Silverstein question to the table. Is a moed an important thing? Does it have to be done in its set time? Yet another variable. But it's interesting because God didn't give, they, the, the law was appealed and God didn't say, oh, okay, you can just offer sacrifice along with everyone else. What God said was, okay, you can have another month for it. Now that, that's totally different. Okay, so let's keep thinking about this. Uh, Marla, Rothman, are you, uh, Marla, are you close or far away? I am in beautiful 97 degree Kansas City. How are all of you? All right, good to see you. And I see you in your in your in your shorts. Perfect for the weather. Are you uh, are you camera camera ready today or no? I'm not camera ready. I apologize as I'm okay. running around. Okay. But I did want to just bring out two things in this conversation. And thank you, Matt, for getting me thinking secondarily. Um, one is, you said it yourself when you said, oh, this is like the beginning of a new religion or a new part of our religion. And for me, this is like the beginning of the Mahloket. This is the beautiful part of having a, 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 a conversation with the Almighty that we can have and we're okay to have and we should have. And, he, and, 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 and you know, it's not a case of if mom says, no, go ask dad. He gives an God gives an answer, but it's not um, exactly what these guys ask for because Moed does count and it counts for the whole community of Israel. But I imagine that these guys are Tame uh, because they were caring for their entire community. So God says, wow, you believe in the community. Here we are a year out and you believe in me and you want to offer this gift to me. What's a, what's a good compromise that we can all live with? And that is Pesach Shaining. Okay, I love everything you said, Marla. Thank you for all of Thank that. Um, that. So Marla kind of deepens the, the takeaway. I mean, the, 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 the concern that Ariella raised is so, so correctly the central um, movement here, which is the idea that, you know, God, we can, challenge and God will listen, right? What Marla says is, yeah, and it's more than just like a bit of mercy, a bit of listening. Um, and that's actually what Moses says, right? Imdu, you stand here, but eshma'ah, and I'll listen to what God says. Um, so I'm going to communicate to God, I'll listen back. So there's a listening going on here. And what Marla says is like, yeah, there's a conversation. Like that's what's so radical about this moment is that it seems so far like it's just Moses is is the is the ch channel and he'll be delivering messages and now it's like no we we're going to talk to God back and forth and it's going to be contentious actually Marla said machloket there's going to be like you know an event that's why I suggest that this is the beginning of what will eventually turn into rabbinic Judaism where we have the, the famous words um no God you don't get to decide this case anymore 
The Torah is in our hands now. We are the legislators. We're going to have to figure this out ourselves. And God laughs and says, my, my children have defeated me. You win. You win. You get to decide. Yeah, right on. That's like, that becomes a great point of pride in our tradition that we, the people, are empowered to interpret the law. Right? So that's like, and, 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 and yet, it's not exactly like we, the people, American style. It's like, it's a back and forth. God is still there. And God says, no, no, no. You can't just like do whatever you want. You can't come with impurity into the holy place, but I'll give you another month. We can work this out, you know? There's something very beautiful about this moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm forgetting the, the set. What was the second thing you said, Marla? Just there at the end. Mm, I can't remember, but both of Marla's points are good. I can't remember. That, that uh, Moed, count, Moed does count because we're building a community here. And we're all right. answering to the same clock. Right. Great. Great. That's right. That this is like, uh, this, this is like, um, this is an actual, it's not insignificant that things be done together at the right time. That that's, that's actually, that is God's concern. It's not a, it's not, and that's, and that's why God says, yeah, like, it's not, I, I you know, I, I, it's not just a, a free-for-all here. Okay, great. Um, uh, David Kurtz uh, from Kansas City to New York City. Um, you know, you, I, I kind of go between what Marla said, but I'm really reacting to what Matt said because um, we have to remember it's a priestly book, and I think what, what Matt I was trying to I was trying to focus in on that Pesach is something that we celebrate together. And I think, and when Matt was, was talking, that kind of put it together for me. These people are ostracized from the community. They're separated. This is a way to, this is a way to have everybody celebrated together. And I think that, was, that became important, certainly later after the, the second temple. Um, an interesting story for me, I'll just digress for one quick second, is that I don't know if we can remember at the very beginning of COVID, um, when we all had the disappointment of Passover, of not being together, we all couldn't be together. I consulted a rabbi here because I was really, you know, that's a big holiday for all of us, for me. And, and the, this was recommended as a, as a possibility is to have the second. And at that point, we all thought, oh, well, yeah, this will be over real quick. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, best laid plans. But it, it actually almost had a, a real world practicality. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, and we're in the, we're also, we're in the realm, which is an important realm in, on all of law, but certainly in, in Jewish law of, of contingencies and exceptions and loopholes, frankly, you know, sometimes you start to study rabbinic law and you're like, whoa, like, you know, these, <laughs> hey, I guess Jew, these Jews really are kind of tricky. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you see your own tradition. It's like, that's part of the brilliance of the system is that it's these very clever workarounds and loopholes. And that's, we celebrate that, that we come up with practice to make things work, to make things work. You also, by the way, David, reminded me of, of the other thing that Marla did say, I was trying to recall, which is that Marla suggested that these were probably people who were, who were doing it on behalf of the community. These weren't, that is to say, you could read this, these people happen to have death in their family, or you could say like, these were the people who took care of the dead for everybody. And you're going to tell me these people can't have Passover. 
These people who are doing this work on behalf of the community, they're left out of the greatest communal celebration. Uh, no, that's, it seemed like a mundane concern or a technical concern, but it's actually like, it, it's unfair. It's unfair. Okay. Um, I want to, I think, just like looking at timing here. Um, I think it would be important now to take a look at the Daughters of Salofchad case. And uh, so that we can see, I want to like, I want to see all these three cases. Um, I'll take note of who had their hands raised and if you, if you're still raised and you want to raise it again, we'll, um, I'll, I'll come back to you. Um, but, um, but I want to see all three cases. And the case of Benot Slovchad is surely the most um, dramatic and, and I think, you know, inspiring in some ways. Is, this is the one that really captures our attention and, and usually is the case that, 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 be, that prompts the kinds of, um, of questions and, and reflections that we're having today. But it begins with Pesach Sheni. So now let's take a look at where it goes. Much later in the book of Numbers, so this is Numbers chapter nine, and then later in Numbers chapter 27, here come the daughters of Tzalofchad. And when I say here they come, they come very boldly in that first word with um, Vitikravna, Vitikravna. They came forward, Vitikravna. And that language, we saw that language before. It is both the language that you use uh, to describe offerings themselves. Offerings are brought, fo brought forward. Korban, here's Hakrivatar Korban, bringing forth the Korban, the offering. And it's also the same language that we saw the people in uh, the case of Pesach Sheni, Vayakrivu. You'll start to see if you pay attention to these words, that these cases are all very, very deliberately and closely linked, okay? But Tikravna, and they came forward. This is the, only the second time this has happened. They came forward, and it's the daughters of Slovchad of the tribe of Menashe, son of Hefer, son of uh, Gilad, son of Machir, son of Menashe, Lemishpachot Menashe ben Yosef, um, of the tribe of, of, of Menashe ben Joseph, and they came forward. And... Um, their names and it names them. And I mean, to like, as I said, this is literally patriarchy, right? It isn't just like the larger implications of the system. This is like describing patriarchal uh, tribal organizations. And yet it names these women. It names them. And, and that's significant, really takes time to name these women in a tradition where women don't always get named. And their names of these women were Machla, Noah, Chogla and Milka and Tirza, okay, five of them. And they stood before Moses. Remember how Moses asked the others to stand and wait? So they stood in this same sort of legal form. They, and before Eleazar and before the chieftains and the whole assembly, I mean, it's like, you know, I am on the one hand proud of this case uh, that, you know, that resolves uh, this issue in favor of these women, but also startled that they had the audacity, the boldness to stand up to the to the, the heads of the community at all. And they stood up and they said, our father died in the wilderness. And there's some reason here for another class why they really want to make clear he was not one of the faction, Korach's faction. They were not part of the mutiny. There was a mutiny earlier in the book and they were not part of that mutiny. He died for his own sin. Why they mention his father's sin? What is it about? The Midrash says, oh, maybe he was the one who was gathering uh, twigs on Shabbat and was stoned for it. Maybe that's what they're talking about. But 
and for some reason they want to clear their father's name even while admitting that he was he had sins but he left no sons let not our father's name be lost to his clan just because he had no son now we've studied this case in this class before so there's a lot of nuance here and a lot of thinking like is this really a feminist cause are they really just only able to argue this on behalf of their father's name it's certainly not feminist as we know it today and neither is the is the solution exactly like egalitarian in any way, but it's a prominent moment and it's the beginning of some sense that um, that women have, you know, personhood, authority, power, legal, even legal power in this tradition, and so give us a holding among our father's kinsmen and the language here is the same as the language that we saw with the people who wanted to um, have the their their korban batoch. Bnei Yisrael, betoch achei avinu. We want to be amongst them, among our father's kinsmen, just like the in the case above, we, we wanted to bring it forth, uh, same language here with the rest of, or amongst, it's the same language in Hebrew, betoch Bnei Yisrael. For those who, I know not everybody keeps track of the Hebrew, but for me, it's like everything. So, um, so okay, fine. Um, just in terms of seeing the, the literary work here. Okay, now this is the big moment. They brought their case before. You understand the issue? The issue, we, we stated it before. All of the, the plots of land are assigned in the new land of Israel, and they're given to everybody based on their tribes, and that's parsed out through male patriarchs of, of households. And these women are saying, we run our own households. Our father died, and we don't, we don't have... We're running, we're running the ship. So what do we not get to inherit just because our fathers didn't have sons? Now, to be clear, if their father had had one son, the son would have done all the inheriting. So it's like the whole system is like it's not, you know, it's not fair to women. Let's, you know, by our standards. And yet, here's an exception. They're pointing out what do we just with nothing? We get nothing. And look at what Moses does, and look at what God does. Okay. So here's the solution. This is the, the second in, and the most famous of our three cases today. Very dramatic line. By, by Yomer Adonai El Moshe Lemor, God sp uh, spoke to Moses saying, Cain dovrot. They have spoken correctly. This is a, if I thought the last case was a massive moment in the, in the formation of, of, of the Jewish legal process, this is like next level. Cain Benotzlovchad dovrot. They've spoken correctly. Um, the original translation said they, they're the plea of the daughters of Slovchad is just. And I, there's a feeling there that I think is right. But I just retranslated because the, the language that they're using for just is kin, kin, which is not exactly just. It's actually more like right. Or even you, in modern Hebrew, you would know this as the word yes. So yes, they have spoken. Um, if you turn that into a noun, it's kenut, which means honesty, honesty. So they've like they've spoken with truth is what it, it what it really means. They have spoken the truth. They have spoken the truth. Now this is like even theologically is like like the midrash goes crazy. What does it mean? They've spoken the, they they knew something that was true that God didn't reveal or that God hadn't yet revealed or God. There's like a and, and the Midrash says they saw what Moses couldn't see. So there, there are spiritual ways to address this. 
But in the shot of the text, in the simple reading of the text, it's like they brought up a point that, quote, unquote, God had not thought of. Just like, you know, oh, good point. Okay, yeah, let's do it that way then. And I'll just read you the end of the case. And then we'll, we'll see how this case builds. I'll, I'd like to hear how you think this case builds on the last. But they've spoken correctly. You should give them hereditary holding among their father's kinsmen. Transfer their father's share to them. Women can own land and proper big, big, big moment, right? In the, you know, in the long journey towards, you know, um, towards a just society. Um, further, speak to the Israelite people as follows. If a household dies without leaving a son, you'll transfer his property to his daughter. Oh, right. Yes. That's like, seems obvious to us, but it wasn't at all obvious then. And to make clear, it wasn't obvious. Uh, if he has no daughter, you'll assign his property to his brothers. If he has no brothers, you assign his property to his father's brothers. It's all male patriarchal distribution here. But a father can distribute property to his daughter. And um, um, presumably, so can a mother, right? If the father had died and the mother was now holding the property and then died, it could also go to a daughter if there were no sons. If his father had no brothers, he shall assign his property to his nearest relative in his own clan who shall inherit it. This shall be the law of procedure for the Israelites as the eternal commanded Moses. Okay, so that's the law. Bum, bum, bum. Okay, so what I want to think about with you, of course, is this is a big case and, you know, we're leaving less time for it than the first case because this week's case is the first case, Pesach Sheni. But now that we can see them together, let's think for a minute about what is what is similar about these cases? You can hear the language is like one echoing the other. But what is what is similar about these cases, and um, what is what's different, right? What's what's this? What's the same? I'll start to name some of the same thing, same things. Like there's some claim that something's not fair. We were left out of something, and there's an appeal, and there's some kind of solution. Okay, what I'm really interested in is how is this case different or how does it move the ball forward or suggest something that like, what is distinct about this case, given what we've just seen? How, how does this case change our, our understanding of this legal conversation? Okay, uh, turn to Leah uh, Matsui. Um, it may not answer the question. I Do you think there's a, uh, no, I wanna talk. Okay. Uh, there seems to be a thematic through line. It's very important about for me about standing. Um, God straightens the bent. We were slaves. Moses stood before the burning bush. He has to take his sandals off, but he's standing. Uh, he st Moses and Aaron stand before Pharaoh, and in in our services we get Bob Marley saying, you know, stand up for your right. And I think this is like the basis of legal, what I define as legality is we're being right from the beginning of Moses's encounter with Hashem, we're being asked, we're being invited to stand up for what is, for what is just. Great, great. That, thank you for that. Because that we, I pointed out along the way that there are some key words here. It's important to follow those keywords, not just to see the razzle dazzle of the Torah, but because something's being emphasized. And Leah is exactly right to say that this is the standing before Moses, standing before God, standing before the tribunal, standing before the court, that kind of language. 
that becomes important language. It's, it's the language of both legal procedure and in as much as legal procedure is, is religious life in, in this tradition, it's like it has a sacred, a sacred quality to it. They stand and they, they await judgment and there's something both bold and deferential about it all at once. There's a powerful language there. Okay, let's continue to think about this. Noah, Pollock. Alexander, we're not hearing you. Okay. Me? It's yeah, shaky. Me. There's nothing I can do. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. Uh, skip me. I think you will do that this time. Sorry to miss your your thoughts, Richard. I'm surprised how closely the biblical narrative uh, reflects the modern court system. Uh, a case is brought before Moses. He takes it to God. God says, "Yes, the women are right. Do this. Do this. Do this." And then later on, it's appealed. So even the word of God is not necessarily written in stone. It can be argued with. Just ah, okay. okay. Okay, so Richard, Richard is, is a keen one. And it, all, it often, often uh, sees where I'm going and often, you know, won't let me get away with like hiding the ball until the end. Although I basically have, right? Um, but, but Richard's exactly right. There's but I didn't really, I said there are three cases. So uh, Richard's right. The third case is really important to see before we close. Hopefully we'll see it and then also have a chance to hear from Susan. But the third case comes at the end of the book of Numbers. They're all in the book of Numbers. We saw Pesach Sheni, second Passover. Saw the, the daughters of Silovchad. It's like very, very meaningful case on lots of levels. But as Richard says, the third case, if we were inspired by the ruling in Benot Sovchat, comes as a bit of a disappointment or a kind of a, it, 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 a reconfiguring. It takes a little bit of the air out of the, of the, of the case of Benot Sovchat. So let's take a look at the third case, which is again, obviously and completely linked. So let's take a look here. Case three. Now, 10 chapters, nine chapters later, the family heads in the clan of the descendants of Gilad, son of Machir, son of Menashe, one of the Josephite clans, they came forward as well. Wouldn't you know it? Vayakrivu, same language. They came forward as well. And they spoke before Moses and the chieftains, the family heads of Israel. And they said, the eternal command of my Lord to, meaning Moses in this case, to assign the lands to the Israelites as shares by lot. And my Lord was further commanded by the eternal to assign the share of our kinsman Slovchad to his daughters. Now, now we have a problem, and it's not with that ruling per se. The problem is, but if they become wives or of persons from another Israelite tribe, their share will be cut off from our ancestral portion and be added to the portion of the tribe into which they become wives. Thus, our allotted portion will be diminished. Even when the Israelites observe the Jubilee, their share will be added to that of the tribe into which they become wives, and their share will be cut off from the ancestral portion of our tribe. Now, this is, it's a technical issue. There is a way in which we can all understand and even sympathize with what they're talking about. But in order to do so, you have to kind of accept the premises of the land distribution into 12 plots based on tribes and the idea that if women held land and then got married, they would bring that land into their marriage. And the problem that these men are noting and I don't know how to solve it. Um, it might involve far greater structural um, changes um, than, than the first 
the, or then the second case did, the case of Slovchan. But this, what they're saying is every tribe has a certain holding in, in, in the land of Israel. But if every unmarried daughter can inherit land and then potentially marry, that land's going to move. And then all of a sudden the land, every tribe will not have a plot of land in the, in the, in the land of Israel. It'll be jig-jag. It'll be mixed up. And they even go forth so, so to say that in the Jubilee, all land goes back to the original holding. But this moment when the daughters of Slovchad are demanding their land is a, is a claim to an original holding. So, so there's a problem here. We could lose and we could lose land, tribal land this way. Okay. Whether you think that that is, it, how, whatever you think of the, the, that claim, you can understand where they're coming from. It's not, we don't think women should inherit. It's that there's now a problem given patriarchy. It's still patriarchy. I mean, I, I don't mean to hide that at all. Um, okay. But, but listen to the response. Okay. Now listen carefully because there's, oh, oh how much time do we have? Though? Just one minute. Okay. Um, Moses, so Moses commanded the children of Israel in accordance with the eternal. And, and the same language here, Cain Mate Bnei Yosef Dovrim, the Josephite tribe has spoken correctly. Same, same language there. And this is what the eternal has commanded concerning the daughters of Slovchat. They may become the wives of anyone they wish, provided they become the wives within a clan of their father's tribe. So they can't become wives to whoever they wish. They have to marry a Manassite. Okay? So they still inherit the land. I'm not taking that back. But there is a restriction on who they marry that they wouldn't have had otherwise in order to keep the land in the tribe. So it, in this sense, it's a little bit like more like the first case. Like I'm not, I'm not going to go back on, on, the, on the law that I have, but I'll give you a kind of um, an, additional, an additional law that will address this, like further legislation. No inheritance of the Israelites may pass over from one tribe to another, but the Israelite heirs, each of them must remain bound to their ancestral portion of their tribe. And on and on and on. I'm out of time. So I'll just, that's basically the idea here. Now, and I'm sorry that I'm, I'm not going to, unfortunately, uh, have, get to Susan. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll hear from you next time, Susan. But I, this case is an, a kind of undoing of the second case, or at least it's an undoing of the wow, women are fully empowered in this society. That's not, that's not the case. It's like the, the priorities are still the clans, the tribes, the land, the tradition. It, like, and so one case comes forward and challenges the laws of inheritance. And, and it, there's a real response there, a real and significant response. And then another case comes forward and says, wait a minute, Wait a minute, that's gonna ruin our situation. And again, there's legislation. The only thing I wanna say at the end, and here's like just a little, a little, I'm not sure about this, but there's a little nugget here for us to consider as we leave. When in the first case, the men came forward, Moses said, stand right here and then I'll go talk to God. When in the second case, the women came forward, they stood before Moses and Aaron, and then God delivered a message, right? And the language again and again, God commanded, God commanded, God commanded. I just want you to take a look that there's a, see, notice there's a little bit of a difference in the language of the third case. The language of the third case is that Moses commanded, by right? Moshe, and it does say, al pi Adonai, in accordance with the eternal. But it's a little different 
And I don't know what exactly what to make of it, but it sounds a little bit like, did, did he go talk to God? Did he bring their kid? These men are not standing there waiting to hear. So is it, was it the same process? Or is Moses now saying, wait, I get how this works. Okay, given everything that we've heard, this is the answer. According to what God says, I'm going to tell you the answer. And, and is it Moses echoing God's language? Is it God that once again says, Cain, B'nai, uh, Yosef, Dovrim? Or is it, is it Moses using that same language? Because Moses is learning that I don't need to go, maybe I don't need to go I talk to God every time. Maybe I now can start to come up with answers myself. And I say this, I think that's, I'm not sure about that, but I want to offer that little teaser at the end that maybe actually the third case is a break from the first two where Moses isn't going back and forth, but now starting to make sense of the law himself and to command on his own. And I say this because that last case, the one that we just saw, that's the last thing in the book of Numbers. That is the end of the book of Numbers. Strange end. The reconsidering of an earlier legal revolution, the daughters of Slovchad. The last thing in the, in the book of Numbers is, so the daughters of Slovchad did as the eternal had commanded Moses, and they all married within their tribe. And so their share remained in the clan. And then these are the commandments and the laws that the eternal commanded the Israelites through Moses on the steps of Moab at the Jordan near Jericho. Why end the book that way? Why end the book that way? Also, if it's a bit of a deflating, oh, well, we have to reconsider what we already reconsidered. I want to just suggest that the reason that, that we end the book here is because maybe this is a place where Moses is beginning to take on some authority to consider and reconsider and re-legislate the law that is so far only coming from God. And as the book of number ends, we see Moses take a little bit of that authority. And as the book of Deuteronomy begins, Devarim, it's all Moses. Suddenly Moses is narrating stories. Suddenly Moses is speaking. Suddenly Moses is giving us all kinds of new laws. And then we have to ask, did Moses get all of these straight from God? I mean, on one hand, yes, Moses is empowered by God. Moses speaks with prophecy. And on the other hand, Moses is emerging. Moses is an emerging, and with Moses, the legal system is emerging. The courts are emerging. The, 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 the legislative process is beginning to emerge, and it will keep emerging and turn into the rabbinic Judaism, the thing that we have inherited, the, the, the complicated and sometimes noble and redeeming and sometimes kind of twisted and loopholed and, and, and sometimes even disappointing but, and, and messy, but that's, that's the law in action, the legislative process. It's not, it's not in heaven. It's not fixed in heaven, right? It's, uh, it continues to be um, configured and refigured, formulated and reformulated as it moves throughout the generations. Okay, blend there. Thank you so much, everybody. Uh, I, uh, I uh, wish once again a happy birthday to Leah and, uh, and healing to, to Matt and whoever else needs it. And uh, love you all. I'll see you next week.